Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, everyone. How are you all? So I'm bringing you a new style of episode. I wanted to help out my wine friends doing their WSET diploma. So that's the Wine Spirit Education Trust. And several episodes ago, I focused on viticulture. Now this was just for me, but it turned out many people studying found that really, really helpful. So this episode is going to be on fortified wines which is one of the units that you do within the two years when you're studying your diploma. Now apart from reading a lot of information most of the time as students they use flashcards so I've decided to do a little bit of a flashcard style podcast. However for all of you who just love wine and want to know more and increase your knowledge this will still be a really interesting episode but I warn you my gosh I've crammed so much in here. Naively I thought that this would be able to cover all of the fortified wines. It does not. This is going to be part one and then future down the line I'm going to do a part two so this is going to cover sherry VDNs so van de naturals and also Rutherglen muscat but remember these episodes are for all of you at whatever stage you're learning at so if you love this episode let me know and if you don't if you don't like the flashcard style email me or direct message me on Instagram and tell me so I can change it up so yanina at eatsleepwinerepeat.co.uk and of course yanina is spelt with a j or on Instagram direct message me at eatsleep underscore wine repeat. Okay, everybody get your brains ready, get focused because I'm about to throw a lot of information at you. So for this first section, let's look at Sherry, the fortified wines down in the south of Spain in Jerez. Now, as you know, I'm doing this in a flashcard style. So for those of you doing your diploma, perhaps be ready to pause after I ask the question, have a think and then see what the answer is. But for everybody else who just wants to learn, you can play this podcast as normal and hopefully you find it educational. So are you ready? Flashcard number one. What is the main grape variety for sherry? The answer is Palomino. There are a few sub-varieties of Palomino, but Palomino Fino is the most important one and accounts for about 95% of the plantings. Now, this is a variety that is quite low in acidity. It's a neutral variety. Now, it does tend to oxidize quite quickly and it's grown at high yields when used in sherry so 80 hectoliters per hectare is the maximum. Now this is the only grape that's permitted in the production of dry sherry but what about the other two varieties grown? The first one is Pedro Jimenez. 
This is a white variety found specifically in the Montilla Moriles region where the climate's actually drier, there is a higher altitude and the diurnal shifts between day and night are more extreme. The grape variety itself is thin-skinned and it's used traditionally to dry in the sun where it produces a rich and sweet raisiny style of wine which of course is fortified. It has a higher sugar content and the acidity levels are higher. And the other variety is Muscat of Alexandria or Muscatel. So use those words interchangeably. Now this grape is also used in another fortified wines if you can think of it in the VDN. So Van do Natural, the naturally sweet wines of the south of France. But back to sherry, <laughs> this grape variety likes to be closer to the sea, it creates high yields of sweet ripe grapes and it loves the hot climate and the sandia arena soils. Remember that as now we are talking soils. So what is the most important soil for sherry? It is Albarisa. So this is a white soil so this is quite chalky as a high content of calcium carbonate and for that reason rootstock choices actually are important to make sure that your vine doesn't suffer from chlorosis it's an amazing soil type that can keep all of the water that comes in the winter so the roots can go deep but on the surface in the summer it can create a crust over the top trapping in the water so it doesn't evaporate and what's often done in the winter is little pits will be dug almost like stairs so that the water can run off and go into the soils meaning that during the really hot drought-like summers the vines can still access lots of water. Now this is the favourite soil type for the Palomino grape. Okay so what are the other two soil types? Soil type number one is already mentioned arenas. So this is a soil that you're going to find in the coastal areas especially in the area around Chipiona, Rota and El Puerto. And it's predominantly sand and clay with about 20% limestone. So as this doesn't hold water very well, this is for the Muscatel grapes. So Muscatel de Alejandria. And the last soil is Barros. So this is a darker, browner soil. It's more fertile. It is actually harder to work. You tend to get higher yield, so the quality is not as great. You're going to find these Barros soils around the foot of the hills and the low-lying valleys where the Alberissa soils are. But typically now, if you're making fine wines, you're going to stay away from planting in these areas. Now I mentioned area, so let's talk about the location. I've already mentioned that this is down in the south of Spain. This is within Andalusia, but let's talk about the Sherry Triangle. So what are the three towns that create those three corners of the triangle and are the only areas within which these Sherry wines may be aged? The most famous is Jerez de la Frontera. Then San Luca de Barrameda, and then El Puerto de Santa Maria. Now, which of the three is more inland? 
This is Jerez de la Frontera, which means it's going to be warmer. Now, looking at San Luca, the Barrameda, this is the coolest area, typically with 17 to 24 degrees Celsius, and it's the highest in humidity, about 60 to 65 percent. The winters can be mild, but also damp. And this is the place that produces what sherry style? Manzanilla. Now we'll touch on that in a second. If we move across to Puerto de Santa Maria, is it a little bit warmer than San Luca de Barrameda? Yes, a little bit more at 27 to 30 degrees Celsius and the humidity is slightly lower at 55 to 60%. And Puerto Fino is the name given to Fino matured here. And then, of course, because Jerez de la Frontera is more inland, temperatures reach 34 to 40 degrees Celsius. Now, how would you describe the climate down here in the south of Spain? It's a Mediterranean climate. It is warm and there is a lot of sunshine. About 300 days of sunshine a year. So let's all pack our bags and move to Jerez. But you do still need an umbrella really because compared to the rest of Spain, actually it does have quite high rainfall. But this typically, as I kind of mentioned before, rains in the autumn and the winter months. Now, there are two winds that you need to know about. What are the names of these winds? One is a hot wind, one is a cold wind. The Levante is hot and the Poniente is cooling. Now, the Levante can be a really strong wind, up to 80 kilometers per hour. It's the famous easterly wind that can ruin your time sunbathing on the beach. But of course, if you're a surfer, it's fantastic. <laughs> And then you have the, the Poniente wind, which is the westerly wind that blows from the Atlantic. Hence why it's cooler, but it also brings in humidity. So Jerez is the place where both these two winds meet. And this allows for this really unique biological aging of sherry. So let's talk about floor. What is floor? F-L-O-R. Well, floor is a yeast and it forms like a film over the surface of wine, which protects it from oxidation. Now, the wine is filled into 600 litre barrels, which are known in the Jerez region as butts, and they are not completely filled. Now, with that, the floor has access to oxygen which it needs alongside nutrients in the wine an alcohol level from 11 to 12 percent alcohol and as it raises the floor cannot be produced above 15.5 abv it needs to be at temperatures of between 15 to 20 degrees celsius good levels of humidity and low levels of so2 and no fermentable sugars so this is for a wine that has already been fermented to dryness now what the floor does it eats away at the alcohol in the wine and the oxygen it produces carbon dioxide but also acetaldehyde and it's the acetaldehyde that gives sherry its flavor so this is biological aging so i repeat these are biologically matured sherries and flavors that you're going to get 
Have a think quickly, pause. Ah, apple skins, bread dough, saltiness, nuts, hay. And the question is, which of the sherries are biologically matured and are gonna taste like this? There's two. And the answer is Fino Sherry and Manzanilla. A question again, where does Manzanilla come from? I think I have mentioned this already. This comes from its own Dio, Manzanilla de San Luca. So this is San Luca de Barrameda region. And here, it's a town much closer to the coast than Jerez. So here, with the higher humidity levels and with a more constant but cooler temperature, you find that the bodegas here are able to maintain that floor all year round. So whilst they share all the same aromas and flavours as Fino, one, they're lighter in body, and two, they often have more of this salty, saline, sea spray edge to them, something quite zesty. Now, we haven't talked about the decision whether a wine is going to be a Fino or it's going to be in one of the other categories. So question to you, how are they classified? Well... The classification happens when they look to see how much floor is developing on the surface. So a wine with lots of floor over the top, a lighter body and a paler colour is going to be classified as a Fino. Now if the wine has produced no floor or just the tiniest amount and is fuller in body, it's going to be classified as what? An Oloroso. Now you'll also find the best finos are made from very light, gentle pressings and fermented at lower temperatures. Whereas if the winemaker is thinking to make an Oloroso, he will have higher temperatures and he may do heavier pressings. Now, once they have classified whether they're going to go for a fino or the heavier Oloroso, they fortify the wine. What percentage do they fortify the wines to? If you're going for a Fino, you fortify to 15% because the floor can still develop. If you're going for the Oloroso, you fortify to 17% and this will kill off any floor that's there and make sure that no floor can develop. Now question, what is the sherry fortified with? It is a neutral grape spirit with an ABV of about 95 to 96%. Now there are definitely two benefits to fortifying with such a high alcohol percentage. And they would be, one, the fact that this spirit is neutral, it's not going to change the flavour of the wine. It's not going to mask any flavours. And two, there is a lot less dilution going on with the base wine because by using such a high alcoholic spirit, you need a lot less to bring that sherry up to the 15 or 17% ABV that you're going for. Now quickly looking at all the fortified wines of the world, which would be your Rutherglen Muscat, your Van du Natural, your Madeira, Sherry and Port, all of them are fortified with this highly alcoholic neutral grape spirit at about 95-96% except for one. And that one 
uses 77% grape spirit. Which is the odd one out? The answer is port. So port is the only one using a lower ABV. Now back to sherry again. So after you've fortified your sherries, you're going to rack these into neutral oak barrels, which they call butts, B-U-T-T-S. And they are going to go into what we call the sobre tablas stage. So what is a sobre tabla? A sobre tabla is the youngest wines at the beginning stage of their development and effectively is a Spanish term for when the wine is in the top row or the first row of a Solera system. So what is a Solera system? So a Solera system is a traditional way in which wine can mature and be blended in barrels. So these barrels, they're arranged in different tiers and you would call them criaderas. So each wine within one tier is the same age. Now the wines that are the oldest and are ready to be drunk are at the bottom this tier is called the solera. Above this is the first criadera and then the second criadera and it's possible to have up to 14 criaderas. Now right at the top is the sobre tabla and this of course is the youngest wines from the latest harvest. Now this is where fractional blending happens. At the bottom from the solera a fraction of that wine is taken out so they can sell it. And this is now replaced with the same amount of wine, but from the first criadera. Now, of course, you need to replace the first criadera with the same amount of wine from the second criadera, and it goes all the way up. So a little bit of a younger wine is going into the slightly more mature wine below. Now, this ensures consistency and that the wine taken out to the bottom is always the same style and the same quality every time. And for this reason as well, we can only ever refer to those wines with an average age because they are blended. Now this process happens throughout the year, but a maximum of a third of the barrels can be extracted to maintain that consistency. And as you're probably imagining, the idea of barrels stacked on one another, and that's a really good way to understand the Solera system. Actually, though, in reality, each tier, each criadera often is actually put in different places in the winery for the fact that if there was an earthquake, having barrels stacked on top of each other could completely destroy a solera system. And so they very often keep each criadera in different parts of the winery. So not as romantic, but the exact same system happens. Now, going back to those wines, the young wines from the latest harvest that are in the Sobre Tabla, before they fully enter the Solera system, there is actually a second classification. So what is this second classification for? Well, it's actually very important for the Fino wines. So after the wine has been sat in barrel for six to eight months, they are checked to see how the floor has developed. Now, 
in some cases, the floor will have failed. And at that point, the winemaker can decide to reclassify the wine as an Oloroso, which means fortifying them up to 17%. Or at this stage, they could also reclassify them to a palo cortado. And palo cortado is a thing in the wine industry that no one fully <laughs> understands. However, I'm going to give you a pretty decent definition now. A palo cortado is a sherry that is extremely rare and considered to be amongst the finest sherries that are made. In the regulations, they state that this wine has to have the finesse and floor character of an amontillado. So we'll talk about amontillado in a second. But it has to have the weight of an oloroso. So as mentioned, many producers will identify a palacortado at that second classification stage. However, there are many different methods in which to make a palo cortado, which is why this specific wine and its production techniques are often seem so vague and there's so many explanations behind them. But for those of you studying, that second classification is very often when a palo cortado is identified. And the name palo cortado, do you know what it means in Spanish? It means stick cut. So the idea is that when you take the fino must, so this is the finest must, you fortified it up to 15% and that cask was marked with a palo or a stick, so it's slash, a mark. In that second classification, when they've realized it has special characteristics, the floor has diminished and now it's a little bit more intense, it gets a line put through that original slash, making it a cut stick, a palo cortado. And then it moves on to its oxidative aging because it's been fortified up to 17% and now it's going to continue its life aging like an oloroso. So let's talk about oxidative aging. We've already discussed biological maturation with the floor. So what is oxidative maturation? So oxidative maturation or aging is when there is air present in those part filled butts. So whereas before with biological, the floor was on the top, these wines have been fortified up to a higher ABV, meaning that now the oxygen is going to affect the flavors of the wine. Now the sherries that will be aged oxidatively are the Oloroso, an Amontillado, but also those sweeter grapes, the Pedro Jimenez, and also occasionally Muscat sherries too. So Oloroso, which is oxidatively aged the whole way through, is going to be really brown in colour and you're going to get lots of exotic spices, dried fruits, some leather and toffee notes but keep in mind this is a dry wine and it might give you these nutty walnut notes too. Now even with some dry wines sometimes some Pedro Jimenez 
can be added to the wine to add a little bit more texture and a little bit more dried fruits. And the oldest Olorosos can start getting up to about 22% alcohol because with time in barrel, the water content evaporates and the alcohol level goes up. So let's talk about Amontillado. How is an Amontillado created and what does it taste like? So Amontillado is somewhere in between a Fino and an Oloroso. In terms of it has some yeasty aromas because it started its life as a Fino being biologically aged and then after some time it then became aged oxidatively. So Expect some nutty toffee notes alongside a little bit of breadiness. And this will be an amber to brown colour. So in between Fino, which has this lovely pale lemon colour, and Oloroso, which is deep brown. Right, so we've touched on those dry sherries, all of them. Manzanilla and Fino, then Amontillado, then Palo Cortado and Oloroso. Let's look at the slightly sweeter sherries. Now, these are called Vino Generosos de Liqueur. So these are blends because they're produced from the dry wines and then the naturally sweet wines or concentrated grape must, known as RCGM, is added. Now, there are three sherries in this category, which are... One is pale cream, the second is medium, and the third is cream. Now, the pale cream style of sherry was actually pioneered by Croft in the 1970s, so you may have tried a Croft original. And what is the style of this? So basically, it is a fino that has been sweetened. So you're going to get sugar levels, residual sugar of about 45 to 115 grams per litre. So what are medium sherries? So these are basically, typically based on Amontillado, and then they'll be sweetened with the naturally sweet sherries, so PX or Muscat. And then when it comes to sugar level, it could be from a residual sugar of 5 grams per litre up to 115. Now maybe you've guessed what a cream is going to be. It is based on Oloroso, and like the medium, is also sweetened with the naturally sweet sherries, PX and Muscat. In terms of sugar levels, you're going to find about 115 to 140 grams residual in these. Now, they're the three blended sherries, and of course, I've been mentioning the naturally sweet sherries, so Pedro Jimenez and Muscat, but do you know the sugar levels that you would find in those? Well, PX, Pedro Jimenez, is really deep brown in colour, and it is very intense in sweetness. It very often reaches 500 grams per litre of residual sugar, but it has these beautiful dried fruit characters, spicy licorice notes and chocolate coffee, and it's beautiful, poured over vanilla ice cream. So there you go, there's a tip. Whereas if you do find a muscat, this is going to have a similar character to the PX, but it will have a little bit more of a citrusy floral edge to it. Okay. I am very quickly going to wrap up sherry. So I'm going to finish with just the average ages that you can find in blends and some vintage sherries. So if you see VOS on the label, very old sherry, this has an average age in the blend of 20 years. If you see VORS, that stands for 
very old rare sherry and that's going to have an average age in the blend of about 30 years and you can only apply for this quality of age indication status if you are an amontillado a palo cortado oloroso or a px and vintage sherries do exist because you're not adding new wines flaw will never be able to be achieved therefore this wine will always be oxidatively aged do you know what it's called this will be known as añada you will rarely see these wines, hardly any of them are made. And of course, they can't age in a Solera system because you're not adding in any fresher, newer, younger wines. So they will age in just one barrel statically. That's it. That's it. Sherry done. There's still a million things we could talk about, but think that will do. So let's look at Van de Natural, the naturally sweet fortified wines. I'm going to obviously refer to them as VDNs. Now, where do they come from? So these are French fortified wines. They are found in the Mediterranean regions of Roussillon, Languedoc, and the Southern Rhone Valley, with about 80% of the production coming from Roussillon. So do remember that. Now, all VDNs are focused around two grape varieties. So what are they? The answer is Muscat or Grenache. But here is your list. So you can use Muscat Blanc à Petit Grand, Muscat of Alexandria, Grenache Noir, Grenache Blanc and Grenache Gris. And then local varieties are permitted into the blends. But for the sake of simplicity, the two main grape varieties are primarily used. Now, it's worth highlighting that Muscat Blanc, a Petit Grand, has smaller grapes than Muscat of Alexandria and is considered superior in terms of the fact that it offers more intensity of aroma and flavour. So question, what do you expect from a VDM wine that is made from Muscat? It should be an aromatic wine, it should be intense, perfumed with a floral and grapey aroma. Now, we already touched on the fact that they are fortified with a neutral grape spirit of 95 to 96% ABV, but my question to you all is when do they fortify these wines and from what percentage of alcohol do they go from and then to? So it is during the fermentation when the wine is only about 5 to 8% alcohol, meaning that the alcoholic fermentation has not actually used up all of its sugars. And then with the addition of fortification, the wine goes up to around 15 to 18%. Now, let's talk about the two main styles that you can expect from VDN. So what are they? One... It's a youthful, unaged style, and the other is an oxidatively aged wine. And oh, are you ready? Because this is when the labeling terms are important. So, 
Firstly, of course, remember there is a transcript you can download. Go to my show notes because I'm going to try my absolute divine best in pronouncing these French terms beautifully. But of course, the spelling will be different. So what words can be used to tell you that you are getting an unaged style of red wine? Grenat is the term used in Maury and Rive Salt. And Rimage is used in Banyald. But what about for the unaged white? This one, a little bit more simple. Yay! (laughs) It will say Blanc. Now, if we take a red that's been aged oxidatively, Tuyol is the term used in Mori and Rive Salt. Fun fact, it actually means tiled as it describes the brick red to orangey color of the aged wines but in bagnols they call the wine traditionnel well that one kind of is a little bit easier to remember the whites that are aged oxidatively again i think this is a little bit easier they are labeled ombre now there is also a term for both whites and red if they've gone through a much longer oxidative maturation. And this term is odage, which translates to beyond age. And you may have actually seen this on your cognacs if you are a brandy drinker. And you'll be happy to know there is just one more labeling term to know about. Now this can be for white or red and it's called rancio. Do you know what this means? A wine with aromas of leather, Christmas cake, wood varnish, raisin, there's nuttiness and some strong coffee notes. And this is due to its time in wooden vessels and its oxygen effects. Razzio wines can also be aged in bonbons. Now, what are they? They are large glass demijohns that are left outside, so they are subjected to much more extremes from the temperature and the climate. They're not airtight, nor are they completely full, so they are more susceptible to oxidation. Now, I've mentioned a few regions in the last few minutes that use different labelling terms, and these are all from the Roussillon region, which if you remember is responsible for 80% of all the VDNs. Now you can get just Grand Roussillon, AOC, which doesn't focus on a specific subregion, or you're going to find five smaller AOCs, which use certain percentages of, remember the two great varieties, Grenache or Muscat. So are you ready? <laughs> There is just one AOC here, which uses 100% Muscat. And this is Muscat de Rive Salt. And it's actually the largest appellation in Roussillon. This is also the only Muscat region where the wines could undergo an extended oxidative aging. So all other Muscat VDNs will be young and fresh. Now, Rive Salt AOC does both red and white, but only 20% muscat can be used. The rest in the white would come from local varieties such as Grenache Blanc, Gris, Macabo, and Malvoisie. Now the focus here is Grenache Noir. So talking of Grenache Noir, 
Mori AOC must be a minimum 75%. Banyol's AOC, a minimum of 50%. And Banyol's Grand Cru AOC must be 75% Grenache, just like Mori. However, it must be matured for at least 30 months. So you're going to see those labelling terms. Tuyol, Ordage and Rancio. Now, there is one more AOC that must be 75% Grenache Noir. So this is the same as Maury and Banyol's Grand Cru. And this is in the Rhone Valley. So this region can also produce white and rosé. Do we know what it is? It is Rasto. Now, there is just one more appellation in the Rome Valley. I'm sorry, I know. More and more appellations. <laughs> we are now switching over to Muscat again. So this region is Muscat de Baume de Venise. Now, if I have not lost you already and you are still listening... We do have four more appellations left. They are all Muscat, so that's good, right? And you will find them all in the Languedoc. So what are they? They are Muscat de Frontignan, Muscat de Saint-Jean-de-Minevois, Muscat de Lunel, and Muscat de Mirival. Right, no more names, I promise, I think, maybe. <laughs> so let's go for some easier true or falses. Is the maximum yields for VDNs 30 hectolitres per hectare? The answer is true. And what about this one? True or false? The grapes by law must be picked at a minimum potential alcohol of 14.8%. This is also true. So being down in that warm, sunny weather of the Mediterranean, they can reach really quite high sugar levels. So winemakers actually have to be careful to make sure they still retain the good acidity. That is the challenge. And that's where altitude really can play a really big part in maintaining and keeping those acidity levels. It is the Roussillon region of those three, Roussillon, Languedoc and the Rhone Valley, it's the Roussillon region that is the warmest and the driest of those three VDN producing regions. Okay, I think you're VDN'd out. Let's go across to Australia. Okay, so if all that wasn't mind-blowing information, let's very quickly touch on Rutherglen Muscat. So, where is Rutherglen situated? It is inland in the northeast area of Victoria in Australia. And what is the climate like? Well, Rutherglen, it has a continental climate with warm days, but it is moderated by cool air that just flows down from the Victorian Alps during the night. Now, it's these warm days and the long, dry autumns here that make a difference. So why are they important? Well, large amounts of sugar can really accumulate in the grapes during this time and that is going to mean that there is a much sweeter style of wine that can be produced. So grapes that are left on the vine for longer can become riper 
more sugar levels and they can start to shrivel so by shriveling becoming more raisin like that sugar level intensifies even further and that means that there really is a potential for the grapes to reach a possible 20 percent potential alcohol abv so this is going to lead to sweeter more concentrated wines with those dried fruit characteristics such as raisins and this is what brother glenn muscat is known for now We've been talking about muscat in the VDMs, but what type of muscat is grown here? So Rutherglen muscat is known locally as Rutherglen brown muscat, but basically this is muscat à petit grand rouge. So this is a red-skinned mutation of the muscat blanc à petit grand, and it's very similar to that white version. It displays still all those pronounced grapey and floral aromas. It's just darker. Now, as it's all about capturing the aromatic muscat aromas, of course, a 95 to 96% neutral spirit is added when the fermenting juice gets to what percent? The answer is an absolutely whopping 1 to 2%. Now, the wine is matured in old oak vessels in very warm conditions. So where is the traditional place that these barrels are left. It is in a warehouse with a tin roof and that is because when the sun comes in it really heats up those barrels so the higher the barrels are left the closer to the top the quicker they are going to mature and so this is going to affect the flavor so also a winemaker needs to make the decision the very important decision of where they position the barrels. Now, during maturation and with all that heat, what happens? So the answer is, during maturation, the water is going to evaporate gradually from those oak vessels. This is going to cause the alcohol and the sugar and the acidity levels to rise gradually over time. So the speed of this process is impacted by the heat. It depends on the size of the vessel and also the amount of humidity and the warmth and how dry those conditions are. And that would then speed up the evaporation process. Now, some winemakers may want to top up their barrels quite frequently. And to do that, then they're going to get a style that is fresher and less of an oxidative style. And other winemakers may do the complete opposite but keep in mind as that wine matures it's going to change color so it's going to go from more of that paler ruby color it's going to go to garnet and then deep brown the sweetness is going to be intensified alcohol will be intensified the body will get richer and more fuller the wine will become more syrupy and tertiary aromas will evolve the more that the wine matures now once matured how does a Rutherglen muscat look and typically taste? So, typically medium garnet is the colour and you should expect pronounced aromas of dried fruits. So, raisins, figs, dates, there'll be sweet spices. This is a wine that is sweet to luscious. It's rich, it's full-bodied, medium plus acidity. And for a fortified wine, this is considered medium alcohol. 
Now, are Rutherglen Muscats typically vintage wines or non-vintage? Well, most are non-vintage as typically younger and older wines are blended together to add freshness to the complex flavours that have evolved. And also this creates the consistent style year after year. These are produced in a modified Solera system. And now I promise you this is the end. To finish off with, there are four classifications of Rutherglen Muscat. Now, what are they? Rutherglen Muscat and classic Rutherglen Muscat. And then you have the much less produced Grand and then Rare. With each level, it becomes more concentrated, more complex, and there's more residual sugar. So, the Rutherglen Muscat. This is, on average, a three to five-year-old wine with residual sugar of 180 to 240 grams per litre. Classic Rutherglen Muscat. This is, on average, six to ten years with residual sugar of 200 to 280 grams per litre. The Grand Rutherglen Muscat, average of 11 to 19 years with residual sugar of 270 to 400 grams per litre. And the Rare, which hardly any is produced. Rare Rutherglen Muscat is a minimum average age of 20 years but very often is much older. And again, the residual sugar will be the same as the grand, 270 to 400 grams per litre. Now, keep in mind, the grand and the rare classification will be more tawny to brown, much darker in colour and deeper, with an even more treacle and nutty flavour to those aromas we already mentioned. So that's it for part one. There will be a part two, which will cover Port and Madeira. And that will be when I release my solo episodes. But for next week, I have Chris Tyrrell on the podcast behind the Tyrrell's Wines, who are an Australian family that go back to 1858. They make some of the best semions, of course, have incredible stories to tell. So I'm excited that next week, we're really going to dive deep into the great variety semion. I will leave you with a wine quote as always. And actually, this is a Spanish proverb. And they say, with wine and hope, anything is possible. So for those of you that are studying for your diploma right now, you just need wine and you just need hope. Oh, and um, this podcast, this podcast as well. (laughs) Thank you as always for listening. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do leave me a review and some stars as this helps the podcast become so much more discoverable. Right. I am now going to settle down with a glass of wine and switch off. I hope you are going to do the same. So until next week, cheers to you.